0: folks, this is Abel James, and I just had one of the best green smoothies of my life with a bunch of veggies from the backyard and some coconut milk. You totally should have been there. It was awesome. But anyway, thank you so much for listening to the Fat-Burning Man Show. Of course, I'm Abel James, and today I'm here with Dr. Colin Champ, the caveman doctor, so get stoked for that. But firstly, I just want to thank you all sincerely for your support. After last week's show with Paul's Jam and A, the donations to keep this show commercial-free have just been pouring in. So thank you so much. I hate commercials as much as everyone else. And in case you missed it, I've set up some donation buttons. You can donate as little as a buck. And if you do, I'll send you a bunch of free stuff. And every little bit helps. So thank you so much for your support. So, Dr. Champ has been exploding on the ancestral health scene as of late. He has a new podcast that's been doing really well with another great dude named Roger Dickerman. And their show is called Relentless Roger and the Caveman Doc. And you guys should totally check that out. All right. So, in today's show, we talk about why sweet foods may be more addictive than cocaine, why bodybuilders know more about nutrition than your doctor, why you should supplement with sea vegetables and kelp to optimize thyroid function and how you can reduce your risk of cancer and avoid man boobs by sleeping well. All right, on to the show. Alright, today we're here with someone you might know as the caveman doc, but I'd say he's the man with one of the most epic real doctor names ever, Dr. Colin Champ. What's cooking, Colin?
1: How's it going, Abel? Good Good to be on here with you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet. So, let's start with just how you got into this whole mess. Wow, so, I guess initially how I got into this whole mess was probably similar to how you got into this whole mess, really into working out, really into kind of diet and nutrition, uh, really into experimenting on myself. Mm -hmm. And this started back in college. And the nice thing about (laughs) that point in my life is I had a lot of buddies that I was training, that I was writing diets for. So not only was I experimenting on myself, I was experimenting on on them as well. Uh, And I just kind of found that certain foods, certain food types, when I manipulated them I got much better results, and you know, I, I know we all lift weights and exercise for the health benefits, et cetera, et cetera. But let's be honest; you know, a lot of it is the the superficial uh, looks of it. And I was always trying to kind of build muscle and burn fat, and I just found the easiest way to do that was by keeping the carbohydrates limited and just mm-hmm. eating the whole foods, eating the uh, the foods that kept me full. And uh, you know, just since then, my my interest in it has grown and grown and grown. And there's more and more research out there supporting this kind of way of life. And it just next thing I knew, I'm I'm in med school, and then I'm in residency. And I was not fulfilled. I was not happy with the nutrition and dietary knowledge that uh, that I was given in med school. Mm-hmm. And uh, we could t- we could talk about this in a minute. But I think actually at the end of my med school. My knowledge on diet nutrition was less so you know, oh, at the weird. end of college. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so then I just kind of had to start griping about it and keep it going. And that's when I started CavemanDoctor.com. And I just initially I was a little frightened to do it under my name because mm-hmm. what I preach goes drastically against what my field recommends as a whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, there's there's great people like you out there that are pushing the same message. So once I started, I saw that there was a lot of support and a lot of backing uh, so then I figured, screw it, you know, and kind of now I go, I still do go by Caveman Doctor, but yeah, I've kind of pushed my, my, my regular old name as yeah. well. And, which is awesome. How could you not take <laughs> advice from someone named Dr. Champ? <laughs>
0: Seriously. <laughs> thanks, awesome. thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting that that's how you got into it. Cause I kind of have a similar path. I, tried all sorts of different diets and vegetarian for a long time. And then uh, I really found that that low carb or at least um, controlled carb was the way to go more from old bodybuilding textbooks than anything else, you know, because I figured if these guys can take pretty much anyone and get down to very low body fat, they must have a, a way of doing it that that at least works under certain circumstances and then i found out that you know paleo is this whole big thing that was growing and man it just keeps getting bigger so that's props to you for you know joining the the charge
1: (laughs) Uh, absolutely and i've i've written it's funny you mention that i've written this on my website why does the bodybuilder at your local gym know more about diet and nutrition than your physician? I love
0: that. <laughs> and
1: and it, it's true. I mean, you, you go into a gym and, and ask a bodybuilder, how do you cut up before a show? And they, and they know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and maybe it's not the healthiest thing to do all the time, but at least, like, like you said, it, it points in the direction of, of figuring out why this is happening, why we can manipulate the human body in this way. And, and the research... Research is backing it. You know, they, they knew from practice, but now we know from these studies that mm-hmm. they're doing the right things, as weird as it sounds.
0: All right. So there are also right and wrong things, but what are some of the things that they got right?
1: Uh, I mean, I think they, they clearly knew that cutting carbs, even though it's drastic, uh, cutting carbs is a good way to just kind of shed the weight. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of this, I understand, and everyone always says, I understand that a lot of it is water weight initially. And that's because, as soon as you stop eating carbs, insulin stops beating on your kidneys and you actually start peeing out a lot of salt. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of a I guess for their point of view, it's it's a double it's it's a double advantage there. you're getting you're cutting the weight and you're also cutting water, which is what they want before a show. I don't think we necessarily want to do that in the grand scheme of things right, uh, which is why I push this is controversial, but I push a lot about salt replacement, um, especially if you're low carb. Uh, so I I think they got that right. Lifting wise, I I don't know. I I think we probably see eye to eye. I mean, I'm, I'm big in terms of lifting heavy weights and trying Mm -hmm. to kind of increase muscle mass, um, and any way to increase muscle mass and decrease fat mass, it's hard to say that that could be bad for you, but there's joint health and all, all those issues and all the, uh. The chronic cardio—you gotta wonder if you're chronic heavy lifting if it's gonna just destroy your joints in the long term.
0: Right, all those blown shoulders and blown knees. But there's also, you know, like you said, as long as you keep it away from being these drastic, massive changes, um, there's a big difference between going at like you know eight out of ten effort compared to like eleven effort, which is what it takes to get those like crazy. Um, you know, personal bests and that's when you blow your knee out and blow your shoulder out. So it's like it's important to learn from that perspective, which is definitely like you can see that it's effective. And I'm glad that there's, you know, some some research behind it as well. Um, But you can kind of be a little bit more moderate, say, than a bodybuilder when you incorporate it into your own lifestyle. So you did talk about the salt thing, and I know that it's controversial, um, but I think it's really interesting. So can you just kind of talk a little bit about your perspective about salt and why it might not be quite as evil as most people seem to think it is?
1: Sure. So there's a couple issues here, and just primarily overall, not to get too... uh, too deep into it but you know frankly the issue with salt has been that it increases blood pressure and this has been why physicians have recommended low salt diets etc and a couple issues here the first one is that if you look at every trial where they tried salt restriction it lowers blood pressure by about Mm one percent so one percent is pretty much nothing yeah Um, but you know when you have a million studies out there some some of them did show this to be a significant amount that it lowered. The, the real question is, that's great if it lowers blood pressure, but does it actually increase your survival? Does it decrease your risk of death, et cetera?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and the data actually shows that it, not only does it not increase your um, risk of mortality, but lowering salt in several big trials actually showed it increases your risk of dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and interestingly, I, I think there's a lot of reasons for this, and f- you know, first and foremost, I think you would agree with with this approach. Uh, salt, table salt, and real salt that we've been eating for you know millions of years, etc., are two different beasts. Totally. Tables, yeah, table salt's processed and refined, and we know that anything processed and refined, like vegetable oils, etc., usually not a good thing. Uh, they add a bunch of chemicals to keep it from caking, and then they add iodine. So it's basically sodium and iodine. Now you get Himalayan sea salt, ocean salt, etc. It's about eighty percent sodium, maybe a little bit less, and then the rest is all minerals. Right. And interestingly, they, they've done trials with with patients where they put them on a salt substitute that in, that uh, has potassium and magnesium and other minerals in it as well, and their blood pressure actually lowered. Wow. Yeah, I, so I hadn't
0: f- seen that. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. So first and foremost, the whole salt dat is based on, you know, chemically altered table salt. <laughs> like
0: non-salt. <laughs> yeah
1: yeah so that's that's my first issue with it. I think if you're eating actually good mineralized salt, you're you're gonna do your body well. And you know the other issue is I, I always call salt the uh, collateral damage in the war against fat. Mm-hmm. When we replace fat, healthy fats with carbohydrates, uh, this increases insulin markedly, and this is what the paleo people, the low carb people out there talk about incessantly, but the big issue is insulin acts on your kidneys and it makes you reabsorb a lot of sodium. Mm -hmm. This is why uh, obese people, et cetera, get a lot of swelling in their extremities and whatnot. They're not peeing out the salt. Now if you put someone on a low-carb diet, that insulin drops nearly immediately. If you look at all the the low-carb diets, your insulin levels drop by about 55%, so you start peeing out the salt and that's Mm -hmm. why you initially pull fluid, uh, you lose water weight initially but in the long term, you pee out a lot of your salt and a lot of fluid, and that needs to be replaced. Mm-hmm. And so, especially if someone's on a low-carbohydrate diet or working out, um, one hour of an of a extreme workout where you're sweating, you can actually lose the entire amount that the uh, USDA tells you of sodium you should eat in a day. You can actually lose that in an hour. Wow. So, people that are eating low-carb and people that are working out, you actually need to be... Very liberal with your salt, especially if it's a good source of salt, like we said um, so i'm I'm very pro salt uh, substituting in 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 the diet and 'm also uh, I also talk a lot on my website about the low carbohydrate trials where they actually give people broth two to three times a day salty broth to drink mm-hmm. to replenish this salt so i I don't see salt, especially mineral salt as a the bad guy at all. And I think it, it's actually uh, a good guy here in the, in the game of health. And I think increasing salt intake may be a healthy step.
0: That's awesome because I love salt <laughs> and I, I do use it liberally. But if people are going to pick salt up, what's like a quick tip for picking up the right kind?
1: Quick tip. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of the pink Himalayan crystal salt. Yeah, um, it's at Whole Foods. It, it is not it's not that expensive. It, it's going to be more than your Morton's uh, table salt. But the, you know this stuff's been in these salt mines for. You know, they always give you some crazy number, two hundred fifty million years. Yeah. However, <laughs> <laughs> however, you know it has the goodness of the earth and all that business. Yeah. Uh, but you know when it when it comes down to it, this salt has had minerals running through it, same as sea salt. You know you have these minerals running down mountainsides and dumping into the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I'm a, just a big fan of the pink Himalayan salt, and it's uh, with these, some of these stores, it's like eight to ten dollars a pound, so it's not that bad
0: yeah it's really not that bad it's just the the issue that normal salt that we're used to is so cheap but yeah. it's almost like a non-cost because i mean how long does it take you to go through ten dollars worth of salt himalayan salt i mean it, it's it takes me a long time and i put it all over everything
1: <laughs> yeah i'm with you i mean you put it out over a year maybe you're spending what 50 extra dollars right if, if that so
0: now what about the iodine issue because it's not obviously added to to old mineral salts
1: yeah so you know there's there's other ways this is such a such an argument between people i get a lot of emails about this too mm-hmm. you know some people now saying all the iodine is causing hypothyroidism some thyroid issues um you know it's still in these leafy green foods that we get etc there are some salt sources that have iodine in it as well i'm i don't count on my salt for iodine mm-hmm. um and then there's you know the the sea vegetables etc those kind of quote-unquote thyroid boosters that you get as well.
0: Right. So is that what um, you recommend, that people kind of supplement with with sea vegetables and kelp and that sort of thing?
1: I would because I think that's a, a good step in the right direction anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think that's that's kind of a better way to do it.
0: Yeah. That's what I do myself, and it's, it seems to work really well. Thyroid issues run in my family, actually, with the males and the females, so it's something I definitely need to watch, but that works for me. Now, you talked about when... Uh, when you were in college and then you went to med school and how that doesn't really line up with the nutrition knowledge that, that you seem to understand now. So what did you need to unlearn, and <laughs> why do you yeah. think it's so out of whack?
1: Well, college to, like I said, very superficially uh, to, to, you know, to lose weight, always increasing the fat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitely went through some periods. If Spring break was coming up you know, you're going to Mexico, et cetera, I'd go through weeks at a time, just extremely low carb. Uh, you know, and and it worked. I got I got skinnier. And in the grand scheme of things, being obese is one of the worst things you can you can do to yourself. Yeah. Uh so then I go to med school and we learn all these other issues on why being obese is bad, etc. But then I'm told the exact opposite of what I know to beat obesity, and that's that you should eat very low fat diets. Mm-hmm. Uh and I, I definitely did watch my diet go kind of back and forth like you know obviously the grains are pushed to an extreme oatmeal um i mean oatmeal is the wonder drug oatmeal solves everything apparently <laughs> uh, but the more i added it to my diet the more i was actually gaining weight yeah uh, i recently went back and looked through pictures of me throughout college uh then for a, a year and when i worked in consulting and then med school and i i'd, I'd look in much worse shape so it's kind of mm mm-hmm what is going on. Um, and, and really in med school too, there's just no disrespect to med students out there because it is really like drinking from a fire hose. You're just overwhelmed and you, you can't question everything you're taught. There's just too much. Yeah. And so I, I just kind of agreed with it and, and took what they, took it at face value. And then once you leave med school, you're in residency, and people are still talking about it. Now I have a little more time. And so you, I start questioning everything again, and it's just it's wrong. And what I knew in college is absolutely right. And that's why I yeah. say when I finished, I, I think I actually knew less because I, I forgot a lot of stuff that I learned previously, or I just assumed it was wrong. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, l- luckily there's guys out there doing these studies, and it's 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 confirming it. Ugh, so that's it's scary. It's scary, and it's tough, and it's why uh, everyone out there understand when when you go to your physician. And they're giving you these dietary recommendations. I mean, that's what they were taught in med school, and they can't—they don't have the time to question everything. It is—it's a flawed system.
0: Yeah, yeah. I remember I had a uh, a really serious issue when I was struggling and uh, and starting to encounter some health problems. It was it was because I was following my doctor's advice at that time. You know, I had my high, blood pressure was going way up. Um, I started to gain weight, retaining lots of water, inflammation. And just feeling generally terrible. (laughs) And their advice was to eat more whole grains, reduce my salt, and exercise more, even though I was jogging, you know, hours, mostly uh, every day. Um, And so I kept doing that for a while. And it wasn't until I completely rejected that and did the opposite and started, you know, just shoving fat down my throat that I totally, you know, reinvented myself and now I'm healthier than I've ever been And that the biomarkers of health also follow that trend which is just amazing so what do you do if you go to your doctor and they're not on board with you know the ancestral health uh, knowledge and and learnings
1: it's a tough question I, I get that email a lot as well so doctors love numbers so which you just hit on when when the biomarkers improve they, they start to kind of realize, Oh, this is actually changing health for the, for the better. Mm-hmm. I, I give a lot of presentations on this in my hospital and, and places around. And I initially at the beginning of this year, I really started to push my viewpoints on people in my department. And a lot of people in my department are trying to lose weight, et cetera. I mean, I think it's good advice for anyone, whether they're a, a cancer patient or just the, the typical public. Uh, and I initially started pushing it and a lot of people changed. A lot of people started eating how we're eating, mm-hmm. high fat, feeling great. But no one was listening because they said, "Oh, it's it's the Atkins diet. It's uh, this is a fad diet. It's it's not going to hold." Then I started collecting their numbers, and everyone's HDL is through the roof. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people's LDL drops as well. Some people their LDL goes up. But LDL is the bad cholesterol. The good cholesterol HDL just uniformly skyrockets. And mm-hmm. HDL is really hard to increase via medicines. It's it's really hard. And so, when I showed these lab values, and I show my own lab values in my presentations to everyone, heads started turning. And uh, one physician in my hospital who is uh, a they he eats uh, fish.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He kind of kept kept me afterwards and was saying the same thing like wow you know i've i thought i was doing the right thing for all these years and my lab numbers are nowhere near yours wow and then you know he said what do you eat what'd you eat for breakfast today and i said five egg yolks nearly flipped out and so (laughs) it's feeling great yeah feeling great's one thing showing weight loss the the other big thing physicians always say yeah you're losing weight but on the insides you're not healthy Mm mm-hmm so to kind of throw those numbers back at them, it's 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 good reinforcement. Hopefully, it will catch on.
0: Yeah, paleo physicians networks and things like that are popping up, which is totally awesome. But I think it does represent an issue, like a very serious issue. That when you started uh, the Caveman Doctor blog, you you did it without your name because you were worried about you know losing your license because it runs counter, like you said, to pretty much everything that you're taught. So, what can we do in in the upcoming years to kind of Change that? Can we do that at a consumer level? Or does it need to come from the medical profession itself?
1: Yeah, I think first and foremost, that there is data out there that conf- that confirms what we're doing is a healthy thing. So mm-hmm. that data needs to get out there, and that's you know guys like you are getting that out there, and it's awesome. Um, patients losing weight and feeling better is it's been out there, and everyone says it's a fad diet so when it doesn't go away for several years, which it's not going to, because mm-hmm. we all feel better, we look better, and our lab numbers are better, so we're going to keep doing this, uh, and that will be good uh, in reaffirming it as well. And then uh, physicians are banding together. I'm, I'm part of a group that uh, just got started after the Ancestral Health Symposium, and it's, it's all physicians, it's all MDs and DOs across the country, and we have a kind of a linking network right now. We're trying to get some studies pumped out, get some of our data pumped out to show people what is happening from this. And, and also to show people that, you know, there there is strength in numbers and a lot of physicians out there are starting to practice this way. Uh, and then hopefully from there, it'll just keep catching momentum. Very but cool. Def- Yeah. Banding together is a huge thing. So then I don't have to do it under a a pseudonym when it's, you know, a hundred other people are saying the same thing. Yeah. Come after us all.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that, that makes it a lot more powerful, but it goes way beyond weight loss too. Right. And I know you focus a lot on cancer. So can you talk a little bit about that? How does nutrition relate to cancer? Because especially in your field, it's, it's more likely to be medicated than prevented. It seems.
1: Absolutely. There's, there's not a lot of great Prevention out there. Um, a lot of the epidemiologic studies that have told us red meat's bad for you, fat's bad for you, et cetera, has carried over into the cancer world as well. So the mm-hmm. anti fat message permeates throughout the cancer community, uh, just like it does the uh, typical, you know, normal medical community as well. So th- those are the recommendations we're telling patients. Yet a lot of laboratory data is pouring in that cancer cells thrive off sugar, glucose. And the biggest thing right now, and while this is while we know it's responsible for obesity as well, is insulin. And insulin is just, there's so much data coming out that insulin is fueling cancer. Uh, metformin, which is a drug that sensitizes our cells to insulin so that if you give it to patients, they have lesser increases in insulin levels. Mm-hmm. This is turning into a treatment for cancer. I know at Ancestral Health, Rob Wolf talked about, metformin and everyone thinks it's right. this wonder drug but you know it really works by <laughs> the, the way to one up metformin is just to kind of cut that food out of your diet yeah so it just like you said it's all about medication well let's uh, let's before we even need to get patients on metformin let's get them off the the processed uh, terrible carbohydrates you know the, the whole grains even mm-hmm. and uh, not increase their insulin levels but the connection between insulin and cancer is just it's, it's through the roof there's there's studies now in patients where they're showing high insulin levels, high blood glucose level and breast cancer results in a higher recurrence. And so people the people are making the connections and, and there's the med pushers out there that are going to say, yeah, we can lower insulin levels with metformin, we can lower blood glucose with other drugs. But then people are going to realize, wait, we could also do it before giving that drug by actually pushing exercise and, and pushing a healthy diet uh, and I think once the cancer field takes the crosshairs off of fat, mm-hmm. which hopefully they'll start doing soon, that this will collect some steam. But um, it's still, you know, I have, I have a couple things I want to push for, a couple trials for cancer patients where they don't eat, they eat barely any carbohydrates and it is just met with so much adversity. Yeah. It's such a so, bummer. <laughs> yeah, but it is, but the data is out there. Actually, um, I, had a, I got a paper accepted last week on, this my ancestral health symposium uh, poster and it is on a low carbohydrate high fat diet for breast cancer patients. Oh, congrats. I, That's cool. Yeah, thanks. And it, it's awesome because it's it's exactly what we're talking about and it is data that is getting out there in a peer-reviewed journal. So, you know, when we talk about the link between high carbohydrates and cancer, now at least we have stuff that we can fall back on and refer to.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, because one of the issues that we run into right now is that well, the whole saturated fat, cholesterol thing and and heart disease is based on flimsy or non-existent data or totally fabricated data, you know, from the 50s anyway. But some of the studies since then that have vilified animal foods and fat and salt, like you said, uh, and even wheat to some extent, is they're looking at these foods that aren't really the type of foods that, say, uh, paleo people would be eating. So, for example, when you look at animal foods, they're looking at conventionally raised animals, which if you have if you eat bad bacon and bad burgers all the time like you're probably not the type of person who's leading a healthy lifestyle anyway so a lot of those studies are inherently problematic but what i think would be really interesting is starting to see more research on a natural diet when you do eat you know not chemical salt but natural mineral salt. And in the same way, you look at animal foods, uh, animals that are raised correctly in their nat- natural environment, and even maybe even looking at heirlooms compared to some of the things that people are eating now.
1: That, yeah, that'd be a great start. The, the big issue there, and this is an issue with diet studies in general, somebody has to fund the study. Right. Uh, you know, you have to, and, and it's, it's understandable, you have to pay nutritionists to meet with the patients, you have to pay the staff uh, et cetera. And that is a huge issue. It's a huge issue with, with my study too. I have the study written. I'm trying to get funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if a drug company, if you're using their drug, they're going to fund it. Mm-hmm. We, we're not going to get grass fed beef growers. I mean, maybe we will get grass fed beef growers to kind of pitch in and fund a study, but USDA craft, those kind of places have funded studies mm-hmm. and they obviously push for a more high fat type lifestyle. Obviously that's the foods they push. Mm-hmm. But they're not going to find a grass-fed beef study or a <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, unpasteurized uh, cheese study. So it, you're, you're right on. It's I don't know. We need we need some really rich uh, people to turn to paleo and start donating their money.
0: Yeah, and one of the issues too, and fasting is something that people are talking about a lot, and I incorporate it into my life. But it was reading um, it was Brad Pilon's book. He brought up a great thing that just said, you know, if you could put the benefits of fasting in a pill. Then some company would make bazillions. Oh yeah! But since it, there's like no research out there, and the reason is because like no one makes money from people eating less or like not oh. eating, and so that represents a huge issue. Like who actually would uh, put the money toward pursuing these these studies that could benefit everyone? But you know, obviously, real food doesn't make as much money as fake food, unfortunately.
1: Absolutely. Well, the one nice thing you mentioned fasting. We may have a little bit of an edge there because there are a bunch of studies showing all those pathways, that the cellular pathways that I'm not going to get into because I'll bore all your listeners, <laughs> all, all those pathways that uh, they talk about that are upregulated. Rob Wolf talked a lot about this thing called amp kinase, mm-hmm. which is upregulated by metformin. It's also upregulated by contraction of your muscles, so lifting kind of heavy weights. Um, there's all these pathways that are upregulated or downregulated when you fast. and We know that these same pathways stop cancer growth, stop cancer progression and make treatments of cancer work better, uh, including radiation. Mm -hmm. So that is one way where, in cancer patients at least, these fasting studies may take place. There's a couple articles published in the last year about cancer patients who fasted during chemotherapy for even several days. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are long fasts, how all these benefits came about. So now all these drug companies, like you said, they're pushing for these wonder pills uh, but in doing so, they're they're still promoting these fasting studies. So we yeah. may we're going to get some of our data out there about fasting, kind of the backdoor method. But uh, that that's a good point. That's uh, that stuff's coming out too, and we look into a lot of that where uh, where I work.
0: Yeah, very cool. I I would love to see that, but it could be funny to see it, like you said, in the back door where all of these people are, these drug companies are pushing their pill, and they're just like, look at how great it works if you fast. And then, like yeah. another one says, look at how great our pill works when you fast. And then it's like, well, is it the pill or the fasting?
1: <laughs> Let's yeah, be exactly.
0: honest, guys.
1: Well, even some of those fasting papers, they uh, they go through it, and then the like last sentence is always, "So this is a perfect this is a perfect area for some kind of drug mm-hmm. to mimic this." There's yeah. always that at the end, and then it gets published. <laughs> so. <laughs> so annoying.
0: All right, yeah. so talking about you talked about obviously low carb and reducing insulin. Now, is that more an issue of keeping uh, carbs low over the long term, or is it more about reducing spikes in blood glucose and spikes in insulin? Or is it both?
1: I think it's both. Um, there's a, a paper came out recently looking at patients with brain tumors, and they found that even a small even a spike uh, these patients get really high blood glucose, but even one spike over 180 blood sugar level, just one spike they had a reduced survival of eight months. Wow, so that's significant the other another paper looked at overall average, and that was uh, significant as well. basically the higher your blood glucose is at least for brain tumors, the worse you do throughout treatments. So I think keeping both down is is a good thing um, so you know avoiding all those foods that cause spikes mm-hmm. so
0: now, what about things that are uh, actually Paul Jaminet, I just talked to him the other day, and one of the big things is safe starches. So, it, what's what's your take on that?
1: <sighs> so, I, I eat safe starches. I eat sweet potatoes before and after I work out. Mm-hmm. I uh, I think they're great, and I actually push to you know my friends, family, etc., who do a low carb diet that if they do need to increase their carbs, to do it before and after, uh, because that's when we're especially after our workout. And this is an area of contention, especially in the paleo world. Mm -hmm. But at that point, we are the most insulin sensitive. So you can down some more carbs without having your insulin or blood sugar shoot through the roof. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I agree with Paul on his safe starches. The other issue is those, those starches don't have as much of an effect on insulin. And uh, so even, even rice and kind of Asian cultures, um, I think Sisson or someone talked about this, but it's kind of a, a net neutral type effect on your insulin so right. there, there's definitely this is back to the calories not a calorie there are definitely different carbohydrate sources that have different results on your insulin so I think people can do safe starches if they can do it in a controlled manner and mm-hmm. even along those lines I've noticed sweet potatoes are amazing I throw butter on them and cinnamon and they're great uh, but when I'm done with one I'm kind of done they don't they don't make me crave more like yeah. like wheat or some yeah. of the other carbs mm-hmm. so I'll, I'm fine with them.
0: Yeah, I've got some sweet potatoes waiting for me downstairs, and it's awesome. Nice. Uh, especially, I, I do the same thing. It's like uh, if I eat one, I want to go on a run or do some sprints. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. And that's like a perfect way to, um, to burn them off. But it's also a good way to incorporate some carbs into your lifestyle because I, I've found that if I go too low-carb too long, I, I definitely encounter some issues. So sweet potatoes are good, um, rice in moderation. What else?
1: So the other the other big carbs, I think I turn to those first, especially around workout time. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up, down the line, green leafy vegetables, colorful vegetables, and just ate a couple orange peppers. I almost don't even count them as right. a carbohydrate source. Yeah. Um. But those are probably bulk wise the largest that I eat, and then uh, berries as well: Bla- uh, raspberries, blueberries, blackberries. I make smoothies. Uh, and I, I really do that before and after a workout as well. Throughout the rest of the day, my my blood sugar is pretty low because all I turn to are those vegetable sources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, really my, my carbs kind of end there. Seasonally, I'll turn to some other fruits as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and then, yeah, that's kind of it. I don't what, How about you? What else do uh, yeah. you turn
0: to? I'm a big sweet potato fan. I, I just like them so much. But I do do um, fruit. I have half a grapefruit a day typically especially if it's in season and it's just one of my little I mean you can always have guilty pleasures right like go a little nuts on the fruit when it's in season and that's one of my favorite things to do especially when it's around a workout and they you know people go back and forth to say well fruit isn't good if you're trying to build muscle or whatever but I don't know screw it if you like it eat it (laughs) you know and just don't go too crazy and uh, whenever I do eat a carb though I try to put it on workout days and I try to eat it with things like cinnamon that can help regulate your blood glucose and, uh, and also with a smattering of fat usually. I, I like to eat my sweet potatoes that way and that also helps regulate the spikes to make sure that it's not totally going bananas. Oh, and bananas, that's something I usually avoid. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I do not do bananas. But you brought up a good point there too, if it's controlled. And, and I personally and, and to to people that I talk with if, if I can't control it I don't really eat it I'll, I'll eat it maybe in, in moderation but if I can't control it that's pretty much I know that that's not a food that I should eat on a daily basis like a trigger food you mean exactly
0: so what are those for you
1: they have been I've really minimized them um but I, I will do dark chocolate to just kind of break away every once in a while very dark chocolate um mm-hmm. like over 85 percent uh berries and cream are kind of a, a turn, uh, food I turn towards as well. But frankly, obviously grains and, and those kind of foods I do not consume anymore. They were always a trigger for me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I used to do a uh, one day a week or one day every two week cheat day. And I remember in college that cheat day was just a absolute binge fest. <laughs> it's epic. <kind> of- <laughs> Yeah, and, and uh, you know, like you said, you eat a sweet potato, and when you're done, you you want to go work out. Well, I would, uh, I'd have a cheat day, and I'd eat a bowl of ice cream. And when I was done, I'd I'd eat another bowl of ice cream, yeah. and, and then I'd eat the entire thing. And then a half hour later, I'd feel sad, and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then a half hour later, I'd eat another one. Uh, so yeah, those those sugary foods are absolutely trigger foods for me, where I I turn into a beast. Uh, I can't I can't be stopped, and even. They used to have oatmeal raisin cookies a lot at the uh, tumor boards in my yeah. hospital. Every once in a while, I would try to just have one, and you know, 10 later, it's like, all right, can't eat this anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah, mine were always, and still are actually, popcorn. But I found something, and actually tortilla chips, and the the fatty-salty combination always seems to get me. And I found that when I had popcorn or tortilla chips, like if I go to a Mexican restaurant, they put tortilla chips in front of me. You know, I am not a saint. Like occasionally, I'll eat a little piece of bread or some tortilla chips, but if they're not salted, I don't like them. If it's even if they're super fatty, it's like it's it's not the chip that I like. Same thing with popcorn. If it doesn't have salt on it, or if it doesn't have enough, then I'm like not really a fan. But if it does, if it has lots of butter, lots of salt. Or lots of oil and lots of salt. I'll eat the the whole thing and then feel terrible and all sad.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I'm actually one of my, uh, what I consider a healthier food that is definitely a trigger food is macadamia nuts. Mm. And it's interesting you mentioned that because when I travel, I always bring macadamia nuts. They're my go-to food. But I have to make them unsalted because if they are salted, I will eat the entire bag within five minutes of my flight and have no food for the rest of the week. Right. As soon as I cut that out, it, it is uh, it is a game changer.
0: And that's weird, too, because it seems to override being full, you know, because I can get when you take a few macadamia nuts and you eat them, but you stop, you're full after usually it, it might take a little while, but you're, you're pretty much full. But if you eat the whole bag or the whole can or whatever, you're not like more full afterwards. You just ate yeah. tons more calories.
1: <laughs> it's weird. It, it's the, the crazy interplay between food and the kind of reward system and uh, whatever the heck goes on in our brain when we eat. Yeah, we need to be careful with that
0: because it's easy to break that. Absolutely. Yeah, so with you, let's let's see, we were talking a little bit about insulin and working out. A lot of people are fans of chugging protein powders, but I, as I understand, you're not a big fan of, of whey and, and protein, especially because of its effects on insulin. So, Can you explain to people out there who might not be aware of what happens? Um, what happens when you do consume it
1: so I'm I'm actually not as anti as people would think about the whey protein I, I get okay. a lot of comments on the podcast Uh Roger's, Rogers definitely a little more anti he talks about egg protein is more often than whey mm-hmm. uh, you know the, the issue with so whey protein can still it can stimulate insulin uh, secretion as well the if you're if you're into fasting and you do whey protein uh, one of the big areas that you want to downregulate with, with fasting is mTOR mm-hmm. and, uh, protein can actually stop those results, uh, stop it from being downregulated. So, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of these people on higher fat kind of ketogenic diets, um, if they eat too much protein, especially too much protein powder, whey protein powder, it will knock a knock you out of ketosis, which may not be that bad for everyone. Yeah. Uh, but it will, it will, de- uh, jack back up the uh mTOR pathway so that's kind of one thing you want to avoid i whey, whey protein if it's from a good source i think is okay especially moderation just because i i really go back and forth on this but for a lot of people it's it's a, it's still a step in a positive direction yeah. for those that are that intensely scrutinizing whey protein or which kind of protein i think they're all in pretty much good hands. You know, you don't have to convince them of anything if they're, if they're at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, don't think it's a big issue before and after a workout. Um, but to actually replace other meals with just whey protein, especially when I think they should be more fatty sources, I think then you can start to get into trouble. Uh, and the other big issue with, with the whey proteins are, uh, whether it's causing an inflammatory or a kind of immunologic response to them. And some people even say to get yourself checked from, a immunologist or an aller- allergist, etc. If you're e- if you're consuming a lot of whey protein,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, you know that being said, I've been doing whey protein for for quite a while, and I've never had an issue with it. Yeah. So I I think it's very. Some people eat it and it just rips their GI tract apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think then you had you have your answer. You're you are very sensitive <laughs> to whey. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I I've cut it out and I haven't noticed an issue. I just. I'm not gonna lie I love uh before and after workouts to do smoothies sometimes and I throw it in there and it's it's a treat for me I don't know
0: yeah like a guilty pleasure kind of but yeah <laughs> but you it's, also it's, know that it's it's somewhat good for you and it's kind of the cost benefit of you know that you need protein it's going to satiate you um, and you don't want to put a can of tuna in your smoothie
1: yeah exactly. That, that even the data to have protein before and after workouts is is pretty limited, and mm-hmm. I know in the the paleo world they've kind of gone against that. But right. I, I don't know how it is for you per- personally. I've I've seen better results, and maybe it is totally in my head. But I've seen better results. I feel better in the the weight room. I I, I work out better, and I'm stronger. So I've I just keep doing it. Yeah, yeah, and as long as you're not. You're not doing something that's not working and
0: still doing it. You're doing something that's working and continuing, continuing to do it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I eat ice cream and I, it makes me sad, so I stop. <laughs> it <laughs> this, makes you sad and fat. <laughs> yeah, but this is pushing me in the weight room, so I still do it. So we'll, we'll see. Maybe one day I will have to cut it out.
0: Yeah, I've tried that. I've I've tried cutting out dairy many times. I'm just a dairy fan. Like my family were uh, at least portions of them were dairy farmers going going way back and so we can get at least when I'm in New Hampshire raw milk and that stuff is so good we make our own yogurt so there are good things that happen when you have probiotics and so I, yeah. I keep it in. I try to cut it out every once in a while my girlfriend cuts it out all the time and she's just like it's not worth it I love my cheese
1: <laughs> I'm with you and I think I respond totally fine to dairy so is it, is it an issue I don't know and, and the probiotics is huge it's an easy source of, of some good probiotics yeah all right so
0: let's talk about the sweet foods and these these pathways. I know that there's been a lot of talk in some studies as well about how addictive they are. And and you care, compared it, I believe, to cocaine.
1: Yes. Yeah, I mean, they there's a study in mice, which this study will only take place in mice, never humans. I'll tell you <laughs> why in a minute. But uh, they, they yeah, they basically let them choose cocaine or uh, the sweetness of saccharin, and they they do these things with mice where they kind of train them to. Be able to choose one thing daily, and ninety-five percent of them chose the sweet taste over cocaine. It's I, so weird. <laughs> so I mean, it's it's an extrapolation, but sweet taste to us is is better pleasure than cocaine. It's a drug. It, yeah, exactly. And so when you have these people, when you have patients, and they're like, patients come and see me, and they say, you know, my doctor told me to eat less and exercise more, and I I literally just told a guy earlier today and I'm like, how's that work out for you? And he's like, well, I'm like 330 pounds. I'm like, yeah, exactly. So let's, let's stop, let's stop telling you that because you're clearly addicted to food. Yeah. So telling you to eat less of an addictive food is like telling an alcoholic to, to drink one drink instead of five. Right. It's just not going to work. So I said, let's cut those foods out and replace them with, with fat foods, fat Mm -hmm. that actually fill you up and and, and make you no longer hungry. And I said, I know your primary doc is going to absolutely want to crucify me but his method's not working and if we look around the US this is what's happening i mean the food pyramid we took the most addictive foods put them at the base of our whole recommendations and pretty much dosed the entire american population with with an addictive drug and now we're now everyone's addicted yeah i mean is is it any surprise no these these are highly addictive foods and there's data now showing that the uh, opioid receptors which are what a lot of these m- morphine-type drugs bind to, that That some of these carbohydrate or grain sources may actually be binding or activating those. Mm-hmm. You, you don't stand a chance if that's the case.
0: Yeah, and I was going to say, too, a lot of these foods, in addition to that, are designed by the food manufacturers to be addictive.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and like you hit on it, too. You, you throw in some salt on some of these foods. I, I think salt on a lot of the foods we eat, these whole foods, is fine. It doesn't turn you into a monster. You put salt in some some fat and then some sugar in these foods and then they mix in some other things the next thing you know you can't put them down
0: yeah it's trouble because you're not actually getting any nourishment out of the food that you're eating you're just kind of engaging these triggers over and over again but when you eat a super fatty sweet potato with some salt on it or some cinnamon or something sweet like that uh you don't want another one you like and no one eats an apple and it's just like i want another apple yeah (laughs) it doesn't work like that
1: (laughs) Even like like diet sodas, etc., where you're almost tricking yourself in a bad way. You're you're giving your brain that pleasure, but you're you're not giving your like you said with a sweet potato, you're not giving your body that fullness pleasure. It's it's a it's a fake out, and, and your body knows, it, and then you just crave more afterwards. Yeah.
0: All right, let's shift a little bit because I like what you talked about. I was listening to your podcast with Roger, who's a great dude, by the way. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and it's an awesome podcast. Thanks. But uh, talking about exercise as a stimulus. And this is something that I talk about uh, quite a bit, not, not burning calories while you're exercising, but actually using it to stimulate either muscle growth or repair or strengthening bones, something like that. Now, let me uh, shuffle some papers here, and there was something that I took, stole from your blog. It says, uh, while chronic endurance activity induces responses and releases chemicals within the body that resembles that of a heart attack, high-intensity training, like interval sprinting, increases muscle mitochondrial capacity making them more efficient, improving exercise performance, and their ability to use carbohydrates for energy in the form of glycogen instead of storing fat, which in, uh, in general language is that you should be sprinting away from lions and cave ladies, I think like you put it, right? Instead of <laughs> running marathons.
1: Yeah, and, and, and uh, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. You don't go to the weight room to lose weight. And this this sounds really bad, and I don't mean to be offensive, but uh, if you go to your gym, you know, walk by the the treadmills and the ellipticals, and then walk back into the weight area, and, mm-hmm. and who who's generally in, in better shape? And, you know, it's the the weightlifters have very little fat, and why why is that? Because exactly what you said, they're upregulating their mitochondria, they're getting more muscle, they're basically priming their bodies to burn fat. I mean, mm-hmm. if you have a lot of muscle on you your body wants to fuel that muscle. So it is going to take the foods you eat and and just burn them so that it could lift heavy weights, so that it could do the things you want to do. Yeah. Uh, and conversely, looking at the people that are on the treadmill, those are the people that are doing it backwards. You know, they eat whatever and then they think they're going to go in there and burn it off. And to actually burn off the calories that you eat takes just an incredible amount of exercise, so much that you're going to be what you hit on. <laughs> Tearing up your heart and mm-hmm. releasing all these chemicals that are actually resemble state of inflammation or heart attack versus that of running from a lion or tiger and upregulating your muscles and your mitochondria to burn fat.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, for anyone who's wondering out there and you haven't seen it yet, I did a video about this. I did a, a case study on myself when I was running marathons compared to just doing sprints. And for me, I mean, you know, you caveman doc met me. I'm not like a large guy but I'm not a small guy. I was down to 148 when I was running marathons. So it was chewing up all of my muscle. Now I'm like 168 with lower body fat. Um and that's where my body wants to be. That's that's a more natural place to be for me and I feel tons better. And I'm working out it's it's literally, you know, when you look at the workout, it's minutes a week. Um, of of high intensity activity, and another thing that's funny when you when you go to the gym, which I tend to stay away from gyms because I like working out outside. But when oh. you know I'm jackling or whatever, you look at the people on the treadmill. I don't think I've ever seen a happy person on a treadmill. Oh yeah, they're they're being <laughs> they're miserable. being
1: tortured. I mean, you have like three people that are on their cell phone, uh, a couple people trying to read, and then the rest just yeah, they look they look terrible, and it's they they feel terrible. I I feel. I don't want to sound jaded. I just I feel bad because it's they're clearly subscribing to this, you know, eat less, exercise more, you lose weight. Mm-hmm. It's, it makes you feel terrible.
0: Yeah, but when you, oh man, when you do the other stuff, just a little bit of sprinting goes a long way, or a little bit of of challenging your body to either build muscle or strengthen your bones, and it's it's so important for women, and that's one of the things that. uh it, I guess it's hard to go against that because you're, you're taught that that's the way to do it your whole life. Um, it doesn't really line up with the, the gender roles, right, that women would be pumping iron. But it is so beneficial, especially, you know, for retaining uh, bone mass post-menopause. And that's when people are, are kind of least likely to do it.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great point. I mean, that, that is huge and that is a, a huge issue with women, especially around menopause, when their estrogen and whatnot starts to drop, their their bone health goes south, and and these medications that they put them on are very, they have a lot of side effects. They're they're not uh, they're not benign treatments, and you are 100 percent right on that. You know that that pounding in a healthy pounding, extreme quick pounding, and then you're over really strengthens your bones, and this has been shown time and time again. There's there's actually some really cool studies where they compared sprinters versus long-distance runners and found the sprinters had just tons more bone uh, bone health in, the, in their shins and just thicker bone and stronger bones. And, yeah, this this comes into play absolutely, especially for women as they kind of start to age. Yeah,
0: yeah. Now, we're, we're getting close to time now, but I did want to talk about something else that's really important in terms of uh, sleep. It's, it's something that people tend to ignore because <laughs> – I don't know, they'd rather hit the weight room more or go out for more exercise or slightly change their diet than, you know, just follow the simple advice of getting sleep. But you talk about even the anti-cancer effect of sleep and melatonin. So why don't you just kind of run through that a little bit before we go?
1: Sure. So, briefly, uh, basically when, when light hits the back of your eye, your retina, it sends a signal to your pineal gland to shut it off, and so when you go to sleep, the pineal gland is turned back on. And what this does is it secretes a chemical called melatonin. And melatonin is known as an antioxidant. It's an anti-estrogen. So estrogen, which, which I honestly believe is the bane of all evil mm-hmm. in the world, uh, it blocks estrogen, which is we know estrogens can help regulate breast and prostate cancer. Uh, and obviously it's an antioxidant, so free radical damage, et cetera, it can help fix it. And there are significant amounts of studies showing that blind people, people that have no way for the light to get from their eye to the back of their brain, have 30% decreased risk of cancer. Uh, there's a lot of these studies that show this. Then there's a very interesting thing. So you obviously want it to be dark where you're sleeping. And especially blue light. Blue light can turn this off. So you don't want a blue light alarm clock. You want a red or an orange alarm clock, if, if you even have an alarm clock. Which is interesting because it's kind of like a flame or, or a light, or the kind of light that we've been accustomed to for you know however many uh, mm-hmm. millions of years. The other interesting thing is electrical signals and electrical impulses can also turn off the pineal gland. And this has been shown in workers that are in electric fields. Women that uh, stay at home and have electric heating in their house as opposed to gas heating have an increased risk of cancer there's all these they're, they're not a smoking gun because we don't know for a fact we haven't had a randomized trial where mm-hmm. we've put patients in a room to sleep with an alarm clock or with a cell phone or without help it. so not only is more sleep important but quality sleep's important so not, don't have electronic devices near your bed near mm-hmm. your head turn your cell phone off or put it in the other room and the studies are showing it, it could it could uh, significantly affect your risk of cancer.
0: Yeah, it's amazing, and uh, people are always <laughs> creeped out when they come to my house because I have, you know, totally blacked out blinds and like red lights everywhere. They think I'm a vampire, probably. But it it really does help. Uh, I've always been a light sleeper anyway. Um, to make your room like a cave.
1: Yeah, yeah, and then y- you kind of hit on this too. They'd rather stay at the gym or whatnot in your waking hours. If you sleep in a cave like area and you, you get that sleep, you will be more productive in your waking hours. So just, it's hard to do it if you're type A, but just let it rip and get some more sleep. <laughs>
0: yeah, give it a shot. All right. Uh, we've got to go. But before we do, why don't you tell the folks out there a little bit about your blog and your podcast and anything else you're working on?
1: Absolutely. So my, uh, my podcast is uh, Relentless Roger with my buddy Roger Dickerman, who's uh, just an awesome guy. Uh, it's Relentless Roger and the Caveman Doctor. And you can just kind of Google that. We're on iTunes as well. And my website is cavemandoctor.com. And what I do on there is write uh, things that we just talked about today. I write somewhat longer, extensive articles on these topics. And I cite everything I put on there with the URL so you can access the article via PubMed or whatnot. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, the point of this is if you don't agree with me or if you don't believe me then that's fine go for it check it out see what you think but the goal is to empower you to make your own health decisions i love that
0: love that well colin thank you so much this was awesome to have you on and i'm sure you're not going to be disappearing anytime
1: soon so i I would love to have you on again soon yeah it sounds good i I would i would love that as well i look forward to it thanks for uh, having me on all right thanks doc
0: if you folks would like to hear more from dr champ the caveman doc head on over to cavemandoctor.com and be sure to check out his podcast which is called relentless roger and the caveman doctor and once again i really appreciate all your help to keep this show commercial free so hop on over to fatburningman.com you can donate as little as a dollar and i'll send you a bunch of free stuff so thanks so much for your support i'll be talking to you guys soon cheers